We're getting near the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians this morning. And in our text, in verses 2 through 6, Paul shares some parting words, some thoughts for the journey, some further instructions, as the little subheading on your Bible may or may not read. We've learned so much thus far as we've walked through this letter to the Colossians. The meat of the letter, the doctrine, the theology, the, the applications thereof have been so, so good and so helpful in the life of our fellowship. It's helped the Colossians and all of us, by extension, fix our eyes on Jesus, the centerpiece of true religion. Paul is taught that following Jesus is better than following the teaching of man. In Christ, through His sacrifice in our place, God has radically changed us. He has forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of death that stood against us. The text says this He set aside, nailing it to the cross in chapter 2, verse 14. In Christ, we are now dead to the world and alive to God. The Christian life then is living by faith into who God has made us. It's a constant turning from sin and turning to Jesus. And we live out this Christian life, this becoming who God's made us, in the context of a body, the church. And this Christian life informs the way we live in every space of our life, in all of our relationships. Last week, we considered how the gospel informs the relationships most intimate to us, particularly the ones in our homes and the ones with people we are around every day. Next week's sermon will be um, mostly on sort of Paul's parting words, but there are are more there, a very sort of personal ending, rather. Uh, There's more there than, than we think when it first meets our eye. But this morning, Paul begins sort of the transition away from the, the content, the meat of the letter, and sort of into his uh, conclusion, if you will. In one sense, we shift our focus outward this morning. Paul implores the Colossians to persist in prayer and specifically asks that they pray for new doors to open for gospel proclamation. He also implores them to consider the ways they're acting and the ways they're speaking towards outsiders. When we talk about outsiders in our text this morning, we're talking about those not in the household of faith, those not members of the church. And in Paul's mind, that would be those who are not Christians. Paul sets forth in these four verses what I would call a vision for a winsome faith a vision for a winsome faith, a faith that outsiders can see, a faith that outsiders can understand, and a faith that outsiders, by God's grace and through His power, believe. Our text teaches that this sort of faith is saturated in prayer, focused on the main things, and is lived well in the public sphere. The title of the message this morning is A Winsome Faith. And each of the subheadings, there are three points, sort of complete the phrase, a winsome faith is dot, dot, dot. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write, a winsome faith is dot, dot, dot. Point one, saturated in prayer. A winsome faith is, point number two, focused on the main things. Focused on the main things. And a winsome faith is, point number three, lived well in the public sphere. 
A winsome faith is saturated in prayer. A winsome faith is focused on the main things. And a winsome faith is lived well in the public sphere. Those will serve as the three points of our sermon. Let's jump right into the text and into the sermon. Verse 2 of chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. In verses 2 and 3, we learn that a winsome faith is saturated in prayer. We begin with the first sort of directive. Christians, devote yourselves to prayer, right? The ESV says, as we've just read, continue steadfastly in prayer. The New American Standard Bible says, devote yourselves to prayer. The point being that prayer should not merely be what you do when things go wrong, or prayer should not be what you do or where you turn when things are all of a sudden going really badly, or when the next step of your life is all of a sudden in some sort of question, that, that now you need sort of prayer for direction because you don't know what that next step may hold. Paul doesn't paint a picture of prayer sort of at the, the margins or the periphery of the Christian life. Paul doesn't paint this picture of prayer as this place that we go sort of in a moment of, of last resort. Paul seems to locate prayer at the blazing center of the Christian's life. Now, there is much we could say about prayer. We could do sermon series on prayer. Uh, we could do teachings on prayer, and we certainly will in the future. But so let's focus on what this text says. Here Paul modifies prayer with uh, really three things. I think he modifies it with watchfulness, clearly. I think he modifies it with thanksgiving. And the third thing we'll get to in a moment, I think the prayer that Paul is speaking of here is also missional. It's watchful, it's, it's thankful, it's full of thanksgiving, and it's also missional. And we'll unpack each of those. What do we mean by watchfulness? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Let prayer be at the blazing center of the practice of the Christian life. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What do we mean by watchfulness? I think at the very minimum we mean alertness. Be alert in prayer. Pray steadfastly. Pray with alertness. Yes, pray where you're, when you're falling asleep, but don't only pray when you're falling asleep. Praying steadfastly and praying alertly means being alive and sensitive to God's presence and sensitive to God's will as you pray. This almost echoes what Jesus says to Peter in Mark 14 where he says to watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now, Peter was quite literally falling asleep, so there's a special application for that moment. But I would argue that spiritually we have the propensity to be like Peter in the garden. We have the propensity spiritually to fall asleep. And I think one of the points Paul's making here is that you should pray with eyes wide open. Pray with eyes that see needs. Pray with hearts that care about needs. And pray with brains that actively think about how God may respond to your prayers. As the famous William uh, missionary, William Carey, is said to have said, although Carey scholars aren't sure if he actually said it, ask great things of God and attempt great things for God. Pray with eyes wide open. Pray with a heart that's alert to the needs of other people. Pray with a heart that's sensitive to the will of God because you've read the word of God and rightly understand the will of God. Pray with brains that are asking, God, will you do this in this person's life? Will you do this in the life of our fellowship? 
pray like you know eternity hangs in the balance. Pray like you genuinely believe that the Holy Spirit of God is asking through you the will of the Father to be done. Pray diligently. Now, I think Paul juxtaposes this idea of watchfulness with this idea of steadfastness so that our steadfastness does not lead to complacence. Be steadfast, but be alert while you're steadfast. Don't just sort of go off into this mushy middle ground where you're just sort of praying but not focused. Be praying at all times and be watchful in those prayers. Don't let steadfastness lead to complacence. Fight that temptation. Pray in faith, believing God will act. One of the church fathers said, this is the most glorious fight of the Christian, not to presume upon his own strength, but always and diligently to implore the assistance of God. Now, what do, we mean by, what do we mean by thanksgiving, right? Pray with watchfulness in thanksgiving. I think that a heart that's been captivated by the gospel is a thankful heart. A heart that's been captivated by the gospel comes to God not just with a list of demands to make their lives more comfortable, but a heart that's been captivated by God, a heart that's surrendered to the will of the Father, a heart that understands the grace given us in the gospel, may begin a prayer something more like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That model prayer that our Lord has given us begins with, Lord, hallowed be your name. May all the world know your name. May your name be lifted up. May your name be made famous. That's the beginning of our prayers, that God would be made known in our lives, in the lives of our friends and family, in the lives of our city. A thankful heart seeks the glory of God in all things because a thankful heart is overwhelmed by the goodness of God shown us in Christ. And a thankful heart then prays for other people because it wants other people to experience what we've experienced. We want people to meet Jesus and have their sins forgiven and know him and have peace in every season of their life and have purpose in every season of their life and be able to go through trials and difficulty knowing that God is with them and God is pruning them and God is changing them as they journey onwards toward him. A heart that's been captivated by the grace of God will be thankful. A heart that's fixated on God above ourselves will be thankful. A thankful heart will not always just seek its own needs and goods, although it will certainly ask, give us this day our daily bread, meet our needs, Father. But a thankful heart will also look outward at the needs of others. Diagnostic question here, if you're taking notes. If all your prayers were answered right now, what good things would have happened to other people? <laughs> A better question even. If all your prayers were answered right now, let's get specific, that you've prayed in the last 48 hours, how many of your friends and family members would be on this stage getting baptized by the end of the year? 
If all your prayers from the last 48 hours were answered right now, how many of your friends and family members and coworkers would be on the stage being baptized by the end of the year? That leads us to verse 3. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Prayer should be steadfast. Prayer should be watchful. Prayer should be thankful. And finally, prayer should be missional. Pray for us. Pray for the team, Paul says, that God would open a door for the word. Now, if I'm a prisoner, let's just hypothetically say I'm in prison. One of our short-term trips to South Asia goes terribly wrong. The prayers that I want you to pray for me are for an open door, but the door I generally would have in mind would be the one that is sort of locking me in my jail cell, <laughs> right? There's some sort of gate or door that's keep, literally, Paul's in jail as he's writing this, and he's praying for an open door, and there's some sort of irony here, but that open door is not just that he would go free, but that open door is that the gospel would go forward, because Paul's deepest concern is the advance of the gospel and not the advance of his own sort of sense of freedom. Pray that a door would be open for the proclamation of the gospel. Paul is teaching the church the centrality of prayer in the mission of God. If you don't care about prayer, you don't care about missions. If we don't care about prayer, then no matter what we say or how much we give or how many times we go, then we simply do not care about missions. Paul's heart is not, oh, please pray that I would go free. Paul's heart is, oh, please pray that the gospel would go forth because he understood the position that he was going to be in in not much time at all. Paul knew that he would face trial and he would speak in front of some of the most powerful men in the ancient world, and he wanted more than anything else to be clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ in that moment. Church, we must see the opportunities in our lives, the good ones, the victories, and the bad ones, as opportunities for gospel proclamation, and we must pray that we would steward those opportunities well. We must pray for each other in our discipleship groups that the people we're sharing the gospel with will, will listen. We must pray for opportunities. Say, listen, it never comes up at work. Would you pray for a door to open with my coworkers that I could, that I could go to the gospel and I could share the gospel? Or even in a foreign sense, right? We must join our partners to pray for doors to be open to peoples and places where it has yet to go. Paul's vision of missions is one in which all of God's people lock their arms together and ask God for open doors and are obedient to God to walk through them and to clearly proclaim the gospel. We must see every opportunity in our life to make the gospel known, and we must seize that opportunity with clarity. A winsome faith begins and ends in prayer. Point two, a winsome faith is focused on the main things. Now, we'll draw a little bit uh, from verse 5 here, but we'll mostly draw from verse 4. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Let's pick back up in verse 3 so we get the context. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I'll go ahead and read verse 5, even though we'll talk a little more about it just because there's some context here. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of 
the time. Now, verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking that the church would pray for his clarity of proclamation. This is a common theme in Paul. He would say to the Corinthians something along the lines of, the Jews want signs and the Greeks want knowledge, but we proclaim Christ crucified. He'll go on to say that the wisdom of God is the folly of man, right? The Jews want to know how well he can sort of attest to the Messiah and all these signs of the age, all these religious things. And the Greeks, the secular people, they want to know how smart he is, right? But he's saying, listen, I'm not going to satisfy the Jews and answer all their questions. I'm not going to satisfy the Greeks, the irreligious, well, religious, but in a different sense. Folks, I'm not going to satisfy either of them. I'm not going to try to convince them. All I have is Christ crucified. And that that message sounds like folly to man, but that message of Christ crucified, that is the wisdom of God. Paul's prayer isn't, oh God, I pray that those Romans think I'm smart. Oh God, I pray that those Romans like me. I pray that my logic and rhetoric is just irrefutable. But I pray that I'm clear that the gospel may be, may be made known and the power of God may be magnified. Paul wants to be clear about what? That which is most important, Christ and him crucified. Here's a major problem in our day. Are we clear about Christ and him crucified? What is most important to us? What does the world think is most important to us as the church, political power, status in the communities, a return to some golden age we conceive of American history, influence perhaps. Here's something I've learned. It's hard to be clear on the main thing. It's hard to be clear on that which is most important when I'm focused on everything else. It's hard to be clear on Christ and him crucified when I'm never reflecting on Christ and Him crucified. To put it more bluntly, with a lot of grace and salt, it's hard to say Jesus matters most when, in reality, that's not true. It's hard for you to say Jesus is most important when in the practice of your life, that is frankly not true. If your heart is not clear on the main things, your tongue will never share the main things. Now, walk this back just a moment. Many of the issues Christians talk about amongst themselves, argue about, fight about, many of the issues outsiders fight about and argue about, many of the issues that Christians and outsiders talk about and fight about, many of them, almost all of them, matter deeply, and they matter profoundly. And it's wrong just to say, I ignore everything. I ignore everything. Oh, you guys are crazy. Oh, everyone be quiet. Everyone be quiet. But our gospel witness is uniquely essential to who we are. So we must not lose that gospel witness. A first step to losing our gospel witness is losing our intimacy with Jesus. A first step to losing our gospel witness in the public sphere is losing our intimacy with Jesus in the private sphere. 
Because when you lose intimacy with Jesus, don't miss this church, you begin to see your mission field differently. You either want to do one of two things, and this will cover all of us. You either want to defeat your mission field in battle, or you want to join your mission field in party. If you lose your intimacy with Jesus, you either want to defeat those who are outside the church because you see them as an existential threat, or you want to join them outside the church because you think that the things they're seeking are the things that are truly most important in the world. If you hate your mission field, you see them as an enemy in a culture war, and you will never reach them. But if you join them, you've lost the distinctiveness of the Christian life. You've lost your vision of how great Jesus is, and you've lost the, the hope that comes while awaiting your inheritance. Paul is focused on the clarity of the gospel. Paul is focused on making the main thing known, that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's not burning with a desire to beat the Romans in a political sphere. Paul's not burning with a desire to go have these great Roman parties, right? Paul is content in that jail cell as long as he's got Jesus. Paul is content in that jail cell as long as he's got Jesus. This morning, my prayer for us, as we think about a winsome faith, is that we would never lose our focus on the centrality of Jesus Christ, risen, crucified, risen, and soon coming. A winsome faith does not run from difficult issues. A winsome faith does not ignore difficult issues. But a winsome faith does not obsess over these issues. A winsome faith is clear on Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again. Point three, a winsome faith is lived well in the public sphere. Oh, when some faith has lived well in the public sphere. Verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How do you live well in the public sphere? Three things to start from our text. Walk in wisdom, make the best use of time, and speak graciously. Walk in wisdom, make the best use of time, and finally speak graciously. As we think about walking in wisdom, it remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up in those who profess it. The reputation of the gospel is bound up in those who profess it. If we like it or not, we are on some level role models, right? If we like it or not, on some level, our lives are being played out in the context of a public space where others can see us. And if we like it or not, others are forming their opinions based on what we say, based on how we live. Even more intensely, people are forming their judgment on what we believe based on how we live the things we say, 
and the way we say the things we say. One of my church history professors, a fantastic professor, said a lot of times evangelicals will, will, come, will, will do the right thing a lot of times, not always, but they'll often do the right thing and they'll do it in the worst way possible. <laughs> doing things God way, God's way means doing the right things and doing them the right way. Walking in wisdom demands that we embrace grace and holiness. Walking in wisdom and leading a winsome life doesn't mean compromising our convictions. In fact, if we compromise our convictions, we have neither a faith nor a winsome faith. We must uphold the standard of the gospel. The scriptures repeat, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We cannot compromise our convictions for cultural fads. We must be distinctive. We must be different. We must realize even though we will be misunderstood, we will be hated, we are different. Jesus is clear that people will misunderstand us. Jesus is clear that people will hate us. They hated me, Jesus says to his disciples, so they will hate you. But don't miss this. They didn't hate Jesus because he was a jerk. A lot of times, oh, they're going to hate us. Oh, they hate you because you're a jerk. (laughs) I mean, they hated Jesus because they couldn't refute his message. They hated Jesus because he preached the forgiveness of sins. And if you have sins that need forgiven, that means you have sins that have been committed. And if Jesus is the one who can forgive them, that means he has power. You don't. He has authority. You don't. There's a lot of statements being made about the nature of humanity and the nature of divinity. And that statement is that divinity is perfect and humanity is fallen. And that the only hope humanity has to know God is if God makes himself known to us and makes a way for us to know him. And that's what Jesus did. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died in the place of sinners. He rose again from the dead, defeating all of our sin and all of death. He's ascended into heaven where he intercedes at the right hand of God the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit to the earth to draw people to himself everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, and he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's the message of the gospel. That's why people hated Jesus, because he declared God's rule and not Caesar's. That's why they hated Jesus, because he said, this is the Messiah, not the political liberator that you thought you needed, Israel. They didn't hate Jesus because he was a jerk. If they must hate us, let it be because they despise the gospel, not the way we present it and not the way we treat them. We must be gracious and we must understand that people will oppose us. And that leads us to neither crudeness nor compromise. That leads us to neither crudeness nor compromise. Walk in wisdom to outsiders, knowing that they're watching, knowing that they're forming their opinions based on what they see, and walk wisely in ways that uphold the truths of the gospel and in ways that demonstrate love and mercy and compassion for our fellow man. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. There's a lot of ways you can think about this, making the best use of time. I think of one particular story that illustrates what I think Paul is is getting at. I think Paul is is reminding the Colossians of the the urgency of the gospel, right? And in in one sense, Paul's reminding them that that you're watching people who are on a date with destiny, right? 
and they're on a date with dust and divinity, if you will. They're going to die, and they're going to they're meet, meet God, and, and we must proclaim the gospel to them, and we can't lose the urgency of that reality. And so the story I think about is my sweet grandmother, um, she used to go to the beach with us every year. Uh, she hasn't been able to for some time. She's gotten older, and, uh, and so um, one particular summer, she's sitting on the beach. Every year, she bought a new visor, and so she's on, on the beach with her visor and her skirt. No bathing suits on this woman of God. And so she's sitting there under the umbrella, and she's looking out, and, and I think me and Dad, or me and somebody, we're coming sort of back up from the water, and she's sitting in her chair with her visor and skirt. It just helps you visualize. And she's just waving, like waving to Portugal. You know what I'm saying? She's just sitting there, just waving across the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm like, Mama, what are you waving at? And she said, oh, that man out there, he's just waving at me. And so I turn and look. Homeboy's drowning. (laughs) About 150 yards out of the ocean. And Mama's sitting there like this. She obviously doesn't know he's drowning because the only logical conclusion is that he liked her visor and her skirt. And so thankfully some more able-bodied people than my grandmother or child Mason, um, you know, go out and and rescue this poor fellow who's found himself out sort of uh, too far away from the coast. And I think in a lot of ways, that's sort of a metaphor for how we're kind of living our lives. Like we're sitting on our chair on the beach and there's people out there drowning and we're just like, yeah, guys, if you need anything, call me. Good luck out there. You can do it. When we have like a lifeboat, you know what I mean? Like we have the means to rescue them. We have the desire to rescue them. And and, and in a sense, we're, we're sitting there waving at them. Making the best use of time means realizing that that man in the water doesn't have forever, right? He, he, he's not going to make it if he doesn't get helped soon. Spurgeon has a, a very famous quote that perhaps you've heard. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they must perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one person go unwarned or unprayed for. Let not one person go unwarned or unprayed for. Walk in wisdom, make the best use of time, and speak graciously. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, just a reminder for those of us who are on social media, I preached a sermon a while ago, Theology of the Phone, one line that is worth repeating. Our goal is not to dunk on people. Our goal is to be winsome and sincere. Our goal is not to dunk on people. It's to be winsome and sincere. I honestly think we have to relearn this within the church but we have to live this way with those outside of the church. Why do I speak? Why do I speak? I speak to inform, I speak to build up, and I speak on behalf of the one who sent me. I speak to inform, 
I speak to build up, and I speak on behalf of the one who sent me. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders looks like making the best use of your time, understanding that our days are numbered, that eternity is forever, and that the grace of God revealed us in Christ Jesus is the message we must proclaim. How do we walk in wisdom towards outsiders? We let our speech always be gracious. It doesn't say never have a hard word. It doesn't say never disagree. It says in everything let your speech be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. As we move towards a conclusion, and uh, whoever's on the keys, if you want to come on up. A winsome faith is saturated in prayer. A, a winsome faith is it's focused on the main things. And a winsome faith is lived well in the public sphere. Now, I think about the stories of life change that I've been sort of blessed enough to, to hear or be a part of. And almost every time, almost every time, the person who's coming to faith in Christ has met a really average, yet really winsome Christian. And at some point in that relationship, they met at work, they were buddies at school, and they reached back out to them, um, their family members, their friends, something. Somehow there's a connection. Something clicks at some point. At some point, they say something like this, and I had, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard this pastorally, uh, I'd be a little bit wealthier. I've just never heard it like that. Because their eyes are being opened by God to the glory of Christ. I don't think it's that they've never heard it. I think it's they never had the ears to hear. I don't think it's that they never heard it, though that is maybe sometimes true. I think what's really happened is they've seen somebody who's imperfect but loves them. They've listened to what they've had to say. They've heard about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And they've heard an explanation of what it means, why it matters, and how to respond. And they decide they want that. They hear the gospel story in a new way. They've seen people who are trying to live life God's way. And they decide they want in. And they decide that they're going to follow God's rule and not theirs. They're going to make hard but necessary decisions as they seek to follow Christ because they're no longer their own. Church, that's happening here. I've had that conversation multiple times in the last couple of months. And when I get a taste of that, you just want it to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. It's worth making abundantly clear at the end of this message that a winsome life does not save anyone. No one's looking at how you live your life and getting saved based solely on that. I think that's a, a sort of a misnomer in, in Christian life today. 
You know, I'll let my life do the talking. Well, your life has to be the music, but your, your words have to be the lyrics, right? And when the music and the lyrics are both good, you've got a pretty great song that moves your feet and grips your heart and changes your mind. But a winsome life is attractive because it's honest. It's honest about the difficulties of life. It's honest about our struggles. It's honest about sin, and it's honest about failure. It's honest that if each person had a megaphone attached to their thoughts just during this sermon, the room would be empty because we'd be crawling out of the room. It's honest about how sinful we are, but it's honest about truth. It's honest about grace, and it's honest about forgiveness. The Christian life, well-lived, a winsome Christian life, if you will, is attractive because it points to Jesus who has saved us and has set us free and who beckons all men and women and boys and girls to come to him and have life. Christians, Give them Jesus, and they'll never get enough. This morning, our hearts, as we come to the Lord's table, are, I'm asking that you would consider who you want to be joining you at this Lord's table in the next several months. Who in your life can you share with? Share the main things of Jesus. Pray for them. Ask your friends to pray for them. If you don't have any friends, my name is Mason. My email is mason at resurrectionwv.com. I will be your friend and I will pray for your person that you're praying for. Lock arms together. Think about who in my life is far from God? Who in my life can join me at this table? Who in my life can be a part of God's family? We have ample examples throughout the Bible and church history of those people being the ones you may least expect. So as we come to the table this morning, we come as God's people. We come as a family. We come as a body. And this morning, I want us to come aware of who's not here. I think it's interesting. I'll, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Paul spends almost all of the letter to, Col to Colossae, and almost all of his letters, and, and he spends it explaining Jesus, explaining the gospel. He spent it holding forth the good news of Jesus, what he's done, why it matters, and how incredible it is for the entire world. And, you know, if, if, if Paul were writing today, the church probably wouldn't like it because they'd say, like, this is too theological. Like, I want practical advice. But here's Paul's practical advice. Paul's saying, here is Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. Here is God's plan for the whole world. Here is the role we play in it, and we figure out how to live. Paul has been setting forth Jesus in Colossians. He's been holding him up as the object of true religion. He's been holding him up as the one to follow in whom is life and hope. And here at the very end of the letter, he trusts 
that as God's people are turning from their sin, as God's people are loving Him, as God's people are loving each other, that what is being born is a community that is contagious. Why would we want people to join our community if they're not going to be in a community of love? So Paul is focused on making sure we see Jesus. He's focused on making sure we're putting off sin. We're putting on holiness. We're loving each other. We're serving each other. And here at the end of the letter, he's saying, as you're doing all of that, as you're focused on Christ, as you're loving each other, as you're dealing with sin together, as you're turning to Christ together, be winsome. Be aware of the outsider. Speak clearly to the outsider. Speak with grace to the outsider. And watch the outsider become the insider by God's grace and power. So this morning, rather than doing what we normally do and being very aware of who we're gathering with, I want us to be aware just this morning of who we're not gathering with. And I want our hearts to break for those in our lives who are far from God. We have plenty of seats in this theater for your friends and family who are far from God. May each one of them, down here and up there, be filled with people who are far from God that have heard the gospel and responded in grace and faith. Let's pray. Father, help us be winsome. Not because we're awesome, not because our example saves people, because you've called us to be wise stewards of the gospel. Your heart is not just for us. Your heart beats for those who are far from you. You've created us. You love us. Lord, help us lead lives that are saturated in prayer. Help us be watchful in prayer. Help us pray with thanksgiving. Help us pray missionally, setting our sights on those who are far from you. God, help us focus our hearts on the main things. Ground us in your word. Help us to be clear about the gospel. The parts people want to hear and the parts they don't. Help us be clear on sin and clear on grace. And God, empower us to live out this gospel well in the public sphere. May we be people who walk in wisdom who don't just presume that everyone's going to live to be like 95 and then we'll share with them on their deathbed and, and then they'll get to heaven or whatever. Help us speak graciously, knowing how to answer each person, each person who bears your image, each person who you've created, each person who breathes with the breath that you've given them. Help us answer each person. Give us this winsome faith, Lord. Saturate in prayer focused on the main things, and lived well in the public sphere. Amen. As I get ready to come, um, I turned my microphone off and I wasn't done talking. Interesting. As I come to the table, uh, pray and reflect on a name or a person. God, who will be joining me this time in a few months, having come to Christ and passed through the baptismal Pray for those in your life who are far from God. And then in just a moment, all God's people will come to the table.